This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for February 28th. The federal government is reimposing some visa requirements on Mexican nationals visiting Canada. We'll hear from the Radio Canada reporter who broke the story. Plus, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith says she told Take Back Alberta leader David Parker to get some help. A panel of Alberta insiders weigh in on what prompted the Premier to deliver this warning message. And the U.S. Supreme Court agrees to decide whether Donald Trump can be prosecuted for trying to overturn the 2020 election. The CBC's Katie Simpson on what this could mean for the upcoming presidential election season. But first, we have some breaking news. The federal government is reimposing some visa requirements on Mexican nationals visiting Canada. This in an attempt to restrict the flow of asylum seekers coming into the country. Radio Canada's Louis Bluen just broke this story, and he joins me here in the studio now. So, Louis, uh, good work on this. Tell us exactly what you've learned about what Canada's doing here. So, uh, according to our sources, the announcement, the official announcement will come tomorrow, and the measure will take effect tomorrow night at 11.30 PM. And to give you a broad sense, this new visa requirement uh, will affect about 40% of Mexican travelers uh, trying to get into the country. The process to get that new visa uh, will be quite difficult. I mean, it's, it's about four to six weeks to get it. Uh, people will have to give biometrics. So it will complicate uh, life for travelers uh, coming from Mexico for sure. But this visa will be uh, valid for 10 years. It will allow for multiple entries to Canada for a maximum stay of six months each time. So uh, you have to understand also that there's a lot of exempted people uh, for this, uh, in, with this new regime that will be put forward. So foreign students, foreign workers with valid permits won't have to be subjected to that visa. Uh, farm workers, for example. Uh, also, Mexican travelers who had in the past a valid Canadian visa uh, the, from the Harper era uh, in the last 10 years. Also, travelers with a valid uh, um, travel, uh, American visa, uh, travel American visa in the last 10 years too. So there's a lot of people who are exempted. So it does not go as far as Stephen Harper's regime that the Trudeau government uh, struck down uh, before. So it's kind of a half measure, if you'd like. They were, but they want to act because there was a lot of Mexican asylum seekers that arrived in Canada in the last year. Yeah. 24,000, it's the largest group of all countries. And they mainly arrive at Montreal Airport, Toronto Airport, uh, and there's been a sharp rise in the last two or three years. Two or three years. So that's really what they're trying to uh, figure out. Okay, so there are exemptions here for academic reasons, uh, for legitimate employment reasons. If you're trusted by the Americans because they're worried about people coming into Canada and then going into the U.S., that will also apply. But as you say, about 40% will be affected because with Roxham Road closed, it's now Trudeau Airport, it's now Pearson. This is why the Premier of Quebec has been saying the federal government needs to give us some money. So this is a big consideration here. How do you think Absolutely. Quebec is going to react to this? Next? I think it might smooth things off with Quebec for sure, because uh, remember, P- uh, Premier Legault sent a letter to Justin Trudeau a few weeks ago asking that these visas are brought back to slow uh, the arrival mm-hmm. of these asylum seekers. So I guess it will smooth things off a bit. But still, Quebec is asking for a lot of money because he says uh, also that the uh, uh, welcoming capacity of the province is uh, totally overwhelmed. Uh, That's why he asked for those visas to come back. But he's also asking for money because he says that there's a lot of cost, social services, education, healthcare cost. So he's asking for a billion dollars for the the period between 2021 and 2023. So that's a lot of money. There is no agreement on that between Ottawa and Quebec. But I guess maybe it's a start for them to start a dialogue. 
dialogue, which is not really happening at, at this point. Right, because they have settled things with Toronto. The mayor of Toronto, Olivia yep. Chow, got the money she was looking for for asylum seekers. So domestic reaction is one thing. Mexico is a very important trading partner, a very important political partner. What's the reaction been from the Mexican government about this? It's very interesting because clearly the Mexican president was informed of Canada's decision in the last few hours, I guess, or maybe before, because this morning in his press conference, he reacted to that, to the intentions of the Canadian government. And he said it was disrespectful. Uh, mm. He said it was unilateral. Uh, so he's worried about that. And he's even threatening to not come to the Tri Amigo summit. That is plan, he says, in Canada, in Quebec, in April. So what will happen with that, we'll see. The government is not confirming that this summit is happening in Quebec in April, but that's what the Mexican president said. So he's putting a threat forward that we can listen. Y no me gusta viajar mucho. Están queriendo tomar medidas en contra de México. Lo lamentamos mucho. So now, what will this mean? Could there be some retaliation against Canada right. because of that decision? That's the big question we have. You have to understand also that we are in a pre-electoral context in Mexico too, so that could uh, have some impact. But let me tell you, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the shadows, there are probably a lot of discussions going on uh, right now. Well, yeah, just on as a final point, uh, at, at the North American Leaders Summit that uh, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador hosted in Mexico City. It was all about continental integration and supply yep. chains and working together. So this is a big part of a continental economic agenda that Justin Trudeau would like to continue and, and a boycott by, by AMLO. It, Absolutely. It's and it's funny this morning because he also said, you know, Mexico is not a piñata that you can just hit on, you know, because he sees what is happening in the United States. There's a lot of talks about Mexico and the, the, the problems at the border. And then, uh, and then he's looking at what Canada is uh, ready to announce. Uh, so that's the reaction. So we'll see where it goes from now. But it's a very, uh, it, it's pretty tense at the moment. Okay. Louis, great work as always. That's Radio Canada's Louis Blouin. Okay, it's a big news day. Some more breaking news to bring you on Donald Trump. The U.S. Supreme Court has just agreed to take on his criminal immunity claim in his 2020 election subversion case. That means the top court will decide whether the former president can be prosecuted for trying to overturn the election. The CBC's Katie Simpson joins us now from our bureau in Washington, D.C. Katie, we were having you on to talk about three different topics today because the news keeps breaking in the United States. Add another. Let, let, let's Add start. Another. Yeah, exactly. Let's start Just with this case. On. What does this mean? The fact that the court is going to hear his immunity claim. The biggest takeaway that our viewers uh, should have from this moment is that this likely means that Donald Trump's case related to January 6th, the trial, is likely going to be delayed by months, possibly even after the 2024 election. This is going to be a not great ruling for Jack Smith, the special counsel uh, who brought this case against Donald Trump. Um, essentially, Donald Trump's lawyers had gone to court saying, listen, you can't prosecute Donald Trump because these alleged offenses took place while he was still the president and anything he does is carrying out an official duty of the office. That argument had been rejected by the judge overseeing the case. It had been rejected uh, in a unanimous decision by an appeals case saying no president is above the law. But the U.S. Supreme Court has said, hey, you know what? 
we're going to listen to this case and we're going to take it on and we're going to get deliver a ruling. Uh, I believe the date they're setting for uh, the next big date in relation to this with the Supreme Court will be April 22nd. So again, this is just going to push things back. The Supreme Court moves at the Supreme Court's pace. It does not go fast. And so what this means essentially is that there's going to be another significant delay when it comes to Donald Trump's trial. Uh, this trial, one of one of four of them, uh, this trial was originally supposed to start on March 4th, the Tuesday after or the um, start on the Monday before Super Tuesday, which is a big day for elections down here in the U.S., um, it was supposed to start next Monday, but it was put off. And now it's going to be put off until who knows when. Okay, uh, th- that is really significant because there's a legal calendar, there's the political calendar, and, and, and all of that is affected by this. The knock-on effect of this is, is significant. And, and speaking of the knock-on effect, a major political departure today that's going to change the face of, of the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell, longest-serving U.S. Senate leader in history, is stepping down. Here's a clip of him. To serve Kentucky in the Senate has been the honor of my life. To lead my Republican colleagues has been the highest privilege. But one of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. Father, time remains undefeated. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back hoping colleagues would remember my name. It's time for the next generation of leadership. Okay, Katie, uh, not surprising, but still uh, quite seismic. And who knows what that next generation of leadership from the Republicans will look like. Yeah, so Mitch McConnell is this powerful figure, unlike so many others in American politics. Um, He'll be remembered as someone who helped implement Donald Trump's agenda, um, helping to confirm uh, a number of very conservative Supreme Court justices, setting the scene for Roe v. Wade, the uh, decision that had protected federal abortion rights, uh, to be overturned after nearly 50 years of precedent. That's part of what Mitch McConnell is going to be remembered for. But then there is the Mitch McConnell that, in his own way, did stand up to Donald Trump after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. McConnell publicly blamed Donald Trump for that riot. However, he had all of his power in the Senate as the Mm. Senate Majority Leader at the time. He did not vote to impeach Donald Trump. So while everyone talks about how, you know, he 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 resisted sort of uh, getting behind Donald Trump as the the benevolent leader of the Republican Party, he wouldn't get behind that. Uh, But he didn't uh, stand up to Trump in ways that would necessarily be the most effective ways to do so. Um, If you think about what Mitch McConnell has experienced. He got into politics back in 1984. That's when he was first elected to the Senate. Uh, For context, I was born in 1983, so that's a very long time ago. And so the way, what he would have seen throughout his career, coming into Congress in the time of Reagan, and the way the Republican Party has changed. Just think about the values that Ronald Reagan had when it came to the United States on the world stage, when it came to standing up to Russia, when it came to all of those foreign policy decisions. And now take a look at all of the change that's happened and where this Republican Party is headed in this moment. Uh, There's going to be a battle over who is controlling the Republican Party and which wing of the party is going to take control and whether we're going to see someone who is a supporter and ally of Donald Trump fill the vacuum that Mitch McConnell is leaving 
or is it going to be someone who is resisting Donald Trump? It's a very interesting time for the Republican Party and with Mitch McConnell stepping back, not necessarily surprising. He's 82. He's had a lot of health challenges, but it's going to create uh, quite the, 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 the political fight over the future of the Republican Party. Yeah, he's got to leave so those whippersnappers, Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump, can take over that next generation. But, you know, there's not a lot of people in the Republican Party, say, standing up to Donald Trump. And we saw this sort of in the Michigan primary last night. Both Biden and Trump easily took the battleground state. But the results, there's some warning signs there for for both camps. Just talk about Biden. A lot of protest votes. Well, what's the key takeaway there? Yeah, of uh, some 800,000 votes, 100,000, more than 100,000 uh, were protest votes, we believe, directed at Joe Biden. Um, there had been a campaign in Michigan. A number of people were incredibly frustrated with the way that Joe Biden has responded to the war in the Middle East. They want to see him call for a ceasefire. They do not want to see the United States support Israel. And there is a growing sense of frustration, particularly in the state of Michigan. It's home to um, a large number of members. Uh, members of the Arab American community. It's home to a lot of young voters and it's home to a lot of progressive voters. And there had been an active campaign in that state to try and send Joe Biden a message uh, saying pick uh, undecided, I believe is the word, but it is sending that message uncommitted. That was the word I was looking for. Thank you, David. Uh, Uncommitted to send a message to Joe Biden, say, listen, we are unhappy. We want you to address our concerns. And listen, this election is coming up faster than everyone thinks. And Joe Biden needs to find a way to win these voters back and get them back on side, or at least listen to them. That is uh, some of the demands of the organizers of this campaign. They want Joe Biden to listen to them and and to consider uh, their positions uh, on what's going on right now. And so uh, Joe Biden will be under pressure to make sure that he's able to hold on to this vote because Michigan is one of those battleground states that Joe Biden barely won in 2020, and he's going to need in 2024 Mm -hmm. if he's going to remain in the White House. Okay, so so what about Donald Trump? Let's end where, where we started this. Um, He won Michigan over Nikki Haley, but it wasn't this crushing sort of massive victory. What's the takeaway from what we saw there? No, but he's, I believe the phrase we used yesterday was plow town. He's just plowing ahead to (laughs) just keep going. Uh, So he's, uh, this is just another sort of win along the way. Uh, There were hundreds of thousands of votes for Nikki Haley, who says she's going to continue on in this race past Super Tuesday. That's coming up next week. That's where a number of different states hold their contests and a huge number of delegates are awarded to the winners. It's usually a defining moment in these kinds of contests, and it's likely going to be a very good night for Donald Trump. Uh, So it wasn't the, the big blowout that Donald Trump had been hoping for, but it was still a pretty decisive victory. Uh, Donald Trump is pushing ahead in this contest. There's no real challenge to any of his support. And given what happened last night is win in Michigan, given the Supreme Court is deciding to take on this case, which will delay one, if not two of his trials, but one for sure. Um, it's a pretty good day for Donald Trump. All right, Katie, uh, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And thanks for juggling all of those topics. That's the CBC's Katie Simpson in Washington. Okay, a major development today in the case of two fired scientists from a Winnipeg lab four years ago as the federal government has just released documents relating to what happened after opposition parties demanded they made public. And they show at least one of the scientists was found to be intentionally working to help China. It is very clear when you read the documents that the employees in question uh, were involved in a a variety of different scientific enterprises um, that were not disclosed, information was not given, uh, and that they had relationships that they didn't didn't, uh, provide information about. And those relationships, uh, the relationships that they had, 
uh, included concerns that, that there may be connection to their involvement with, uh, with, with, with China. The CBC's Karina Roman is on this story for us. So, Karina, uh, you've been doing some speed reading since we spoke uh, more or less off the top of the show. What, what more can you tell us about the story that's emerging about these fired scientists from the National Microbiology Lab? So last time I was here, like an hour ago or whatever it was, yep. um, you know, we were looking at documents from CSIS that gave an assessment that while they didn't think there was malicious intent, that perhaps these scientists were just naive about their collaborations and they're not following rules, that uh, they would not willingly cooperate with a foreign power, that kind of thing, they were still a risk. And therefore, the CSIS recommendation, or well, sort of recommendation, was that they should not be given their security clearances anymore, which right. basically means they can't work as scientists in this top secret lab anymore. But going further into the documents, CSIS did a later assessment based on mm. a second interview, mm. which shows an evolution in their thinking and assessment. And that's because between interview one and two, they clearly had gathered some more information. Right. And then when they brought it to uh, the scientists, especially um, Dr. Q, uh, it was it was denial, denial, not telling the truth, uh, n- not remembering uh, these things. So every and so it, it, it I, I've got two little tabs here um, when it does this overall assessment uh, about loyalty, saying that Ms. Q developed deep cooperative relations with a variety of People's Republic of China institutions and has intentionally transferred scientific knowledge and materials to China in order to benefit the PRC government ah. and herself without without regard for implications to her employer or to Canada's interests. And the, the benefit to herself is there's these talent programs that um, she said she knew nothing about, but the CSIS says they have applications with her name on it where she applied for these programs where basically you are helping uh, further the scientific... Talent programs in China? Like yes, to work for the Chinese government? But here in Canada. Right. And, and you get paid. Uh, there's there's hmm. benefits, financial benefits. So there's also, in, in the, the description of the interview they did with her, uh, you know, I, yes, she finally admitted she had an account in China, but it only has a little bit of money for when she travels over there and that kind of thing. So there was a lot of contradictory information they said in this interview. Um, and they, they say she repeatedly lied uh, to her security screening interviews about the extent of her work, uh, blanket denials, feigning interest, ignorance, sorry, or tell outright lies. They say she's simply not credible. Um, They talked about her being reckless in her dealings with various PRC entities, particularly in her lack of respect for proper scientific protocols regarding the transfer of pathogens. And this goes back to what we were talking about with her expertise on the Ebola virus and that kind of thing. Um, So finally, they basically assess that they say that it's up to the government, up to the Public Health Agency of Canada, whether or not to revoke her security clearance. Same thing with right. the other scientist, her husband. Um, but it's clear from their language, they say, that if you were to give her, uh, if she were to retain her security clearance, Canada's national security and the health of individuals may be put into jeopardy, as there is no indication, based on our extensive research and interviews of her, that she would change her behavior in any respect. Uh, and it's very similar letters and assessments of uh, her husband. 
and the other scientists. Okay, so, so the bottom line here is that both of these scientists, a married couple, were found to have been leaking scientific information to the Chinese government, potentially for their own enrichment, in violation uh, of all the protocols, and that as it ceases dug deeper into it, the risk assessment became even worse, and ultimately their security clearance and their employment were revoked as a result of this, and, and that they denied it right up until the point they were confronted with irrefutable proof, and then... That and even it. even actually, if you read the interview, yeah. even once presented with the irrefutable <laughs> proof, yeah. um, there were still denials. Okay. Yeah. All right, Karina, uh, thanks. It's it's fascinating reading, uh, you know, a, 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 a little drama playing out in government documents. All right, that's the CBC's Karina Roman. Alberta says it will opt out of the Liberal NDP federal pharmacare plan, plan, but they still want their portion of the funding to put it toward general health care needs, and other provinces may follow suit in that demand. If they come up with some agreement, uh, that is, uh, that's good for, for Nova Scotians, and we're going we're gonna to partner with them, we're going to partner with anyone we can. Uh, but I don't think the, um, the federal government is, is anywhere close, uh, honestly, uh, to making this happen. There might be provinces who have not considered it yet, but that might say, oh, if we may get out of this and get the money, I am interested. And while the Saskatchewan government wants to see more details, in a statement to CBC, a spokesperson wrote, Saskatchewan is not interested in reducing the scope of its existing drug plan to align with a new national plan if the new plan will result in reduced benefits. Okay, so could this deal be falling apart before the legislation's even table? Because people are reacting to something they haven't even seen. Time to bring in the power panel. Rob Benzie. Rob Benzie is a Toronto Star Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Amanda Alvaro is a former Liberal Party communication strategist. And here with me in Ottawa, Tim Powers was a strategist for Conservative parties. And Jordan Likeness is a former NDP strategist. Okay, Jordan, I want to start with you because this is kind of your crowd's big victory <laughs> and big success. Uh, we've got Quebec saying, nah, but that's normal. We've got Alberta saying, we're with Quebec. Saskatchewan saying something meant to expand coverage may actually reduce coverage and everybody's sort of pushing back against it before it's even been tabled. Where's this going? Well, yeah, and I, <laughs> I, I don't think we have all the voices there because, you know, I'll note that also BC and Manitoba were out there saying that they're very excited to partner with the federal government on the PharmaCare program. But as you pointed out in the introduction, this is legislation that nobody has seen yet. Mm -hmm. So I think that particularly uh, for Alberta to come out and say that they don't want to participate, but also for Saskatchewan uh, to come with these criticisms, bad policy and it's bad politics. Because the reality is, is that we don't know the exact shape of it yet. But what we do know is that it's going to be additional money on top of what the provinces are already spending. So more money into systems where drug costs are rising quickly and that it's going to provide coverage for people who currently don't have it. And that's even in Alberta, where there are some plans, but still you've got about a quarter of the population there that doesn't have drug coverage. So mm -hmm. I think politically, if you're in Alberta and next door uh, in BC, people can get free prescription and free insulin and you can't in Alberta, that poses a political problem for the government. Then. Tim, why is it so hard to give people free insulin and free contraception? <laughs> why has this become such a flashpoint? Boy, if we were doing it in St. John's, we'd be very popular <laughs> if we did both on both fronts. But uh, look, I think there's a couple, a few challenges. Mr. Singh, in his enthusiasm for an agreement, mm -hmm. may be overselling this a lot, which is Possible. a normal thing to do because you're enthusiastic and you want to get political credit. But in the process of overselling it or appearing to oversell it at the moment, he set himself up as a target to have the questions posed as to what does it mean and have people posture about where it's going to go. I think we 
we do have to see the details. We do have to know how it's going to work. Um, I think there's a lot of skepticism around it because of the two partners in this. Not that they haven't worked well together before, but what what future might they have uh, as time ticks and potential government changes in the offing? I'm, I'm sort of left wondering, is this this government's Kelowna Accord? And you'll remember in the Martin government mm-hmm. towards the end, mm-hmm. although they did have provincial buy-in on that, you, they had a historic agreement that they signed and that uh, the government thereafter, the Harper government, didn't take forward. No, Pierre Polyev hasn't said much on this at this point, but it, it has sort of the, the demonstration and the actualization to date of, of that. So the skepticism is, is leading to the uncertainty of the believability of all of this. So, uh, Amanda, one, uh, I'm shocked to hear that a political leader in Ottawa might exaggerate uh, their achievements uh, prior to the, to the details being made public. But uh, aside from the specifics of it, there is, this continues the trend of almost the automatic opposition position yeah. from provincial oh, yeah. capitals to anything this government tries to do. And when you look at something as debilitating as diabetes and something as important as contraception, the ability to cover uncovered people, and we need to see what that costs, I, I, Canadians may very well want that more than, say, the universal plan that has been talked about. But how do they navigate this when a lot of the big players mm-hmm. are just saying, no way, we're not going to get on board with this, at least in the initial stage? Well, I think it was a Globe writer today who said, um, you know, the Albertan government in particular was predictably knee-jerk on this one. And that's what we're seeing kind of, this is a pattern that is forming, right? Uh, Government policy is announced. We get this immediate reaction. None of the details are out. And the sad part about this is Jordan touched on it. Uh, You know, only, I I think it's a quarter of Albertans have government plans. So you're talking about a huge number of Albertans, 3.5 million Albertans who are not covered by government plans, right? So what does this say to them to opt out and to disadvantage Albertans before, you know, you've even seen the details of the plan seems really unwise. Of course, they don't have to contend with that for quite some time because it's not like they have a provincial election around the corner, but you better believe that Albertans will have something to say about it at some point. Uh, uh, Betsy, where, where do you see this going? Like, I, I know Ontario is sort of saying, wait and see. You know, others are trying to say, wait and see. Let's see what the actual details are, which is a novel concept in, in Canadian <laughs> politics in 2024 in the era of the hot take. Uh, but you, you, do you see an appetite at the provincial level, uh, provincial levels across the country to, to work with uh, the Liberals and the NDP on this? Ultimately, I do, David, because look at the $10 daycare accord. If you told us, you know, five years ago that you could get the Alberta government to sign on to a $10 a day daycare or even a conservative government in Ontario, as Premier Doug Ford's government did, albeit they were the last to sign on, but they, but they signed on with enthusiasm in the end. Now, there's some teething problems with that program, but mm-hmm. that program's here to stay. I don't care who wins the election that I th- suspect will be held in October 2025. I think $10 a day daycare in some form, it's more than $10 a daycare, mm-hmm. daycare it will be here, it's here to stay because you can't, mm-hmm. it's very hard to take away something. And I think similarly, uh, at, a time, at a time when we have a cost of living crisis, diabetes drugs are very expensive, David, and there's a lot yeah, of people. Exactly. Uh, and who, and who, t- t- who accesses those diabetes drugs? Older people, uh, and they also happen to be the people who vote. So I think it would be very hard if something like this is in place for a subsequent government to cancel it. Um, I, I, that's why I think if the, pro- if the federal government shows up with enough money, all of these naysaying provinces now will be saying, oh, please, sir, we'll have some more. And there'll inevitably some, <laughs> be some side g- deal for Quebec, as there always is, to get them 
them on board. But at right. the end of the day, you can you can throw money at a problem, and provinces will will come running to the, <laughs> to the federal government's tune. It's like the ice cream truck, right? When it comes That's to the neighbor Jordan, money, you know, money, money but, talks. But but yeah. but Jordan just on this, like this sort of all broke before Mark Holland had a chance to talk to the provinces. So there's a sort of a rollout problem sure. here, and that might be the NDP's fault. I'm not trying to pick on them, but you know they were or keen to get the might credit. Might be a communication strategy on their part. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I, I don't say fault, actually, to blame it. But, but you know, how, how, how do they advance this right now with this opposition yeah. at the provincial level? And, and how, do, how quickly do they need to move to get it locked in yeah. so it is not the Kelowna Accord of Pharmacare, as, as Tim described it? Well, and this is, this is about also talking directly to Canadians. So the reality is that they're unlikely to win over Danielle Smith in the mm-hmm. immediate term. Uh, although I will point out that, that reluctant conservative premiers certainly can find their way uh, to these things. You know, we saw the Ford government signing on to a health agreement just last week with the yeah. federal government. They swore up and down they would never sign. So it really does change over time. So they need, you know, and this is something the NDP and the Liberal government need to be doing is speaking to Canadians about the value of this program, what it could mean for their lives, and go out there and do a sales job once that legislation is out and it becomes a little bit clearer how this is going to work. And I think that that's what's ultimately going to build right. the public support for it to protect it through an election period. But... And, and sorry to, to rain on the parade a little bit. I think Rob is... Well, you're here. I know. I'm, 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 <laughs> Just a cloud. Yeah. I'm the a Keith Davey in this panel, the rainmaker. Uh, <laughs> Rob is absolutely right that, um, that daycare is not going to be undone. But uh, if you remember in the latter days of the Martin government, again, Ken Dryden, then social service, social development minister trying to drive daycare, challenge the liberals had then was a messenger and a message, a messenger problem. They have a messenger problem again. When the prime minister rightly got daycare through, and I think it's a good potential program, can be better, but when he got it through, he wasn't the most unpopular federal leader in the country. He, his government wasn't lagging with the public. So Jordan is right. They got to sell it. But if the messenger is the problem, it doesn't matter how good the program is, the messenger's not going to deliver the message. And I think that's the real challenge here. The program may be shown to be very good, mm-hmm. but if people don't buy the messenger and the messenger's friend, uh, good luck. I think Tim's making a good argument for Jagmeet uh, leaking the news early. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, m- maybe. Uh, but, okay, so, so on this. So, Amanda, uh, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the prime minister's image problem in our next topic. Uh, but on this, if the Prime Minister is, is, a, is a troubled messenger, to summarize what Tim just said, and if you have provinces who are determined to fight him on this sort of thing, right? I mean, we saw in Daniel Smith's uh, address uh, before the budget the other night, uh, she talked about when we finally have a new government in Ottawa who will work with us. I mean, the, the, the objectives are pretty clear there. How, how do you start building capacity for this? Because childcare, while mm-hmm. teething pains, as Rob says, it's there. It's locked in. People have seen some savings uh, on their bills. How do you yeah. get pharmacare to a saturation point b- with the time that you have left? Well, the messenger matters. The message matters mm-hmm. as well. And in this case, when we talk about things like contraception, this is not a controversial issue, mm-hmm. right? Like when vasectomies are covered across the country, mm-hmm. I think almost in every province, right. but birth control is not. Mm-hmm. I mean, this mm-hmm. is an issue that women really care about. It's an issue that men care about too, but it's an issue that women care about. And it's a healthcare cost issue, right? 40% of, of unintended pregnancies end up in abortion. So there are major costs to our health care system. And it's really a human rights issue, a reproductive rights issue for women to have access uh, to contraception and for it to be 
covered. So I think that the message itself is a compelling message, just like $10 a day child care was. And I think that that will, will win over the arguments that uh, the provinces are making that, you know, maybe we have a pretty good program and maybe we just like to top it off versus this is something that universally Canadians and especially Canadian women have been gunning for. And, and Rob, just as a final point on this, uh, Amanda mentions how this is important for women. And if there's one cohort of voters mm-hmm. that the mm-hmm. Liberals need uh, to, to come to their rescue in the next election, it is women voters. And interestingly, the information we have on how these negotiations went down and the reporting we've seen is that the Liberals who put contraceptions on the t- contraceptives on the table as, as part of this agreement. It's a prophylactic in this whole agreement. Oh. <laughs> But no, I think, we're hitting the road there. Frankly, no, no. I, I mean, David, the most important. <laughs> yeah, this is why. I, anyway, I was going to make a joke that I probably can't say. Yeah. Um, but I, I th- this is. Uh, I, I think if women abandon Justin Trudeau, he's finished politically, mm-hmm. and he may be finished yep. politically anyway. I mean, tomorrow's the. 40th anniversary of his father's famous walk in the snow, and I don't think it's snowing in Ottawa tonight. It's not snowing here in Toronto. Um, so it doesn't look like he's going anywhere, uh, which is probably not the greatest news for a lot of Liberals who quietly would like to see him leave. But, uh, I mean, you know, you dance with the one that brung you, as Brian Moroney famously said, and, and they, he brought them to power, and I guess he'll, he'll see them out. <laughs> Alberta Premier Daniel Smith is somewhat distancing herself from the leader of a socially conservative organization that helped put her in power. Take Back Alberta founder David Parker posted a series of tweets making deeply personal allegations against conservative leader Pierre Polyev, also against Mr. Polyev's wife, Anita Polyev, and against Polyev's top advisor, Jenny Byrne. Premier Smith says the tweets are unprofessional and she doesn't want to be associated with them. Yes, I told him to delete his ex-account and to get some help because I would say that those kinds of um, uh, comments are unprofessional and it does not help to elevate the discussion in the public square. David Parker is also making insinuations about how the Conservatives are spending all that money they're fundraising. Now, I have two Alberta reporters here to help me make sense of all of this drama, the CBC's Jason Markasoff and Kelly Kreiderman, who is with uh, the Globe and Mail gang. Thanks so much for, for taking that time today. Uh, Jason, set the stage for us first with just the role Take Back Alberta plays in all of this and, and, and the steps we saw from Daniel Smith to sort of distance herself from David Parker's comments. How, how meaningful is this? It, it, I mean, so to set up Take Back Alberta for those outside of Alberta, even those within Alberta who may not totally understand it, the best analogy <laughs> in, in politics is, is that it's like the Tea Party. It's like mm-hmm. this pressure group of grassroots people who are, some, most of them are not really involved in politics, who've been really engaged by certain issues. In this case, uh, first by uh, po- opposition to vaccines and COVID rules, and more lately by uh, trans issues. And they, they rose up, a lot of them rose up, and, and this guy, David Parker, uh, is kind of low-level, mostly political operative, has gathered these group, these people and they helped uh, knock out Jason Kenney. Uh, David Parker claims that he uh, helped knock out and spe- spread some bad rumors about uh, Andrew Scheer in the past. And he's, he's a very charismatic figure. Um, you know, there's this m- m- myth, I don't know how uh, real it is, that he's basically controlling the uh, UCP board. He's gotten people elective and he's Danielle Smith's close advisor. It's true that she's a... Uh, she went to his wedding. They do speak. They do respect each other largely. Um, and uh, he says all kinds of uh, 
crazy things, I would say, on, uh, on X, on social media, um, loves being bombastic, loves being this kind of um, Napoleon loving of the Roman Empire um, warrior in the uh, conservative cause. Um, really interesting, um, fascinating stuff. It's a, it's a trip, his uh, X account. Um, but finally, it, level, it got into the level of a high school drama and cattiness um, where, can you believe what David said about Pierre, who used to be with Jenny and now he's with Aneda and what's Danielle going to say? Um, it got to the point where uh, there seems to potentially have been some pressure uh, from the feds, federal conservatives, on Danielle. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was uh, something she could not put up with. So she says, I think he should get off Twitter, uh, get right. some help. Uh, she's been asked about uh, some of the inflammatory uh, things he said before. And she says, oh, he's a friend of mine. We just one member of the party. Oh, you know, uh, this, yeah. uh, this one with uh, Polyev uh, was different. Yeah, and, and Kelly, we're kind of not, like not putting the tweets up because you're getting into deeply personal stuff and getting into people's you know personal relationships and you know that mm-hmm. that's for them to deal with. And, and but when the premier is asked about it and does what she does, that's that's why we're discussing it. So I have uh, conservatives uh, from Alberta telling me David Parker is overrated. His influence is not nearly as vast as the myth built up around the guy. I have no idea. You're in Alberta. Uh, is he as influential as sort of the origin stories would suggest? And, and, and what did you make of the way the premier distanced herself from the personal? You know, the premier was asked a question about David Parker's comments, and she answered with, nobody gives me marching orders. She answered really with the issue that all of us have Mm. about Daniel Smith's premiership is who has her ear? Who is she influenced by? Um, Is David Parker this uh, mastermind that he makes himself out to be constantly? And he loves self-promotion so it is hard to tell uh, uh, where reality lies sometimes I do think back to the AGM that the United Conservative Party had last fall one of the biggest political conventions in Alberta's history maybe uh, the biggest ever almost 4,000 people there a lot of them were being marshaled on votes by David Parker he walked around uh, the convention hall like he owned the place and we have seen outcomes from that convention you know, there was discussion of parental rights. There was discussion of cracking down on Alberta Health Services, which has been a key issue of his. Um, there, there is a uh, focus on an Alberta pension plan, which he also really likes. So I think um, while the individual, uh, you know, ha- is a friend of the premier, as my uh, colleague Carrie Tate has reported in the Globe and Mail, the premier attended his wedding last year. They are friends. They do talk. That was also clear from the premier's comments yeah. yesterday that, you know, she said, I told him, like, you know, like you're telling your friend, hey, lay off a bit. Uh, that was clear that that conversation was had as well. He definitely is a friend. The movement that he leads, uh, you know, he has said premiers serve at the will of his movement. And I think, you know, there are breaks in that movement, but it does represent uh, part of rural Alberta that feels like it's been ignored by a lot of mainstream politics that is still concerned about the fallout uh, from the pandemic and also really is active in conservative parties in Alberta forever. And kind of if you if you are a conservative leader in Alberta, you need rural Alberta on your side. You need to win Calgary and maybe Edmonton election. You need rural Alberta on yeah. your side. And I think I think I would do I would caution a bit on comparing Western Canadian populist movements to US movements because they are a different ball of wax. They've you know they've also led to a healthcare system that we have now. 
Yeah, absolutely, right? The, the, especially and in the voting rights, I just point out. Right, yeah, right. But, but what, what, what to, to Jason's point, and, and back to you, Jason, on this, is the tactics of, like, getting elected on school councils, getting elected at the riding association. You know what I mean? Sort of taking over the, the, the entry level uh, into politics positions is where they seem to focus some of their efforts. And, and while Smith distanced herself from his comments, she didn't distance herself from Take Back Alberta. Uh, what do you make of, of that balancing act that she's doing there? It, it, it's tricky, right? I mean, this, I, I've been to a bunch of these uh, Take Back Alberta meetings. I've talked to a bunch of the people that uh, Dave Parker will say are Take Back Alberta candidates or members of the CP board. Um, they push back at that. They don't think that they're mm-hmm. like, you know, they don't march to the beat of uh, David Parker's drummer. They don't march to the beat of uh, Danielle Smith necessarily either. Um, but, uh, you know, if you, think, if you ask them who their loyalty is to, uh, and a lot of the people uh, who are in the uh, rural right of Alberta, uh, they'll say Danielle Smith. Mm. Parker, somebody they may appreciate uh, his, his, his speaking habits, his energy, um, his ability to focus people's minds on uh, some of the races and political contests that could uh, wield power but don't actually um, engage a lot of public, like school boards, like library boards, like um, uh, party, uh, par- party uh, councils. Um, but they, you know, they're, they're not huge fans. Like, this is, like, the, the idea that, that that David Parker can you know uh, bang a drum and people will move uh, toward or away from Danielle Smith um, it may be a be one of the bigger uh, pervasive myths in Alberta politics. Okay, that's a really good point because Kelly. Then, then then what is the what is the potential outcome of this targeting of key players at the federal conservative level by David Parker? Is it just a whole bunch of social media noise, or is this something that could turn into something that that really matters? That's a good question. I think, you know, what we saw uh, for a lot of conservatives, a line was crossed on Friday when David Parker did start tweeting about the conservative leader. And, you know, he has uh, he has many, many things to say about uh, the party and the party's operations. Uh, We uh, we don't know if it's true, but he you know, he he, uh, obviously wants uh, liberal leader Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, defeated at some Mm -hmm. point and raises questions about. Uh, the organization of the Conservative Party as it exists now can do that. He says he's he's trying to bring uh, uh, criticism to bear on the party he loves so they can win against Justin Trudeau. I don't I don't know if it leads anywhere. I, I think that there is a big gap between uh, what he is saying on social media and in 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 podcast interviews and what actually plays out. I don't know if it has yeah. a broader audience. Certainly, the uh, silence. From the federal conservatives uh, uh, on this uh, speaks volumes. Yeah, well, I mean, they're not going to take the bait. Uh, I think. And getting right on time, but you know, Kelly, on your point about Western populist movements, I actually wrote a paper about Western populist mm-hmm. movements in the first half of the 20th century when I did my undergrad because I'm all kinds of cool. So that, that's uh, so I know a little bit of what you're saying. There. <laughs> That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.